This episode is brought to you by Okendo. Over 5,000 of Shopify's fastest growing retailers trust Okendo to capture high impact reviews, showcase customer experiences, and drive conversions. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast, the show where I get to sit down one-on-one with some of the most amazing founders and CEOs to talk about the challenges they faced along the way, how they climbed to the top, and how they really got to where they are today. This is episode 125, and today I sat down with Amy Arrett, the founder and CEO of Madison Reed, the hair color company revolutionizing the way women color their hair. Using proprietary color matching technology and a team of on-call colorists, Madison Reed helps women choose the perfect shade of hair color delivered straight to your door, or you can visit one of their 60 hair color bar locations throughout the U.S., Amy and I talked about her experience as a child being the peacekeeper of the family, her experience working as an investor at True Ventures and Maverin Ventures, how she came up with the idea for Madison Reed, and why she runs things by her astrologer first before making any major decisions. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, tell all of your friends about the show, and you can check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Hi, Amy. Thanks so much for joining the show today. I'm so excited to hear your story in building Madison Reed. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lee. I'm excited to be here. Amazing. You know, there's actually a Madison Reed around the corner. I'm here in Woodland Hills and there's one in Topanga Village. Yes, we now have 66 of them open throughout the country and we'll have 80 by the end of the year and over 100 next year. So it's. Oh, my gosh. By the end of 2022, you're going to have over 80 stores or locations. What do you you call them? Stores or what do you call them? We call them hair color bars, hair color bars. Amazing. Yes. Awesome. Well, so let's start from the very beginning. I know that you recently won Entrepreneur of the Year Bay Area winner 2022. Congratulations. Thank you. So before we kind of get to how you got to where you are, let's start from really early days. Where are you from originally? Grew up in Philadelphia, was born there, and then kind of in uh, early teens moved to New York. So I consider myself a, a Philadelphia native, but spent the actually a lot of my life in New York. And then I moved to California over 20 years ago. So I got, I have three different uh, geographic uh, affiliations, both coasts. And so we're in Philadelphia, like in the city, heart of of Philadelphia or kind of outside, a little bit outside of the city, but lived in the city as well. I'm from Delaware. So I know the area well. Okay. So I, I grew up initially in the Northeast part of Philly, and then uh, lived a little bit of the time in in the city itself. So nice. What was it like growing up for you? Did you have siblings? What did your parents yeah. do? Yeah. So I have two siblings. I'm the youngest of three. My parents uh, got divorced when I was seven. So I have uh, sort of you know two family tracks going on there. My dad is no longer alive, so that's kind of a sad thing in my life. But, uh, you know, he got remarried and I was sort of part of that family 
And then my mom also got remarried and I had, we had family there. So uh, I, you know, I had, uh, you know, probably the typical divorced, you know, background, a little bit of conflict, not, not easy. I think in those days, people didn't like send them each other to family therapy. You know, you just, you're just were like, okay, we're not together anymore. Live with it. Um, and <laughs> I was, it out, kids. yeah, I was the youngest. And, uh, so, you know, my siblings, by the time it was all sort of coming down, were kind of leaving the house more. So I was the one that was less left as more of a peacekeeper, which has been a common theme in, in my life. Peacekeeper as in like the, the mediator between the two. Yeah. Or just wanting to make sure both sides of the equation were happy. Right. So, yeah. And then I, Went to college and I went to high school out in Long Island at a town called Great Neck. And then I went to uh, UConn in undergrad. Uh, so spent time in Connecticut and then came back and lived in New York City for a couple of years and then went back to Philadelphia for Wharton. I went to the Wharton School to get my MBA, but then came back to New York again and then uh, stayed for a number of years in the city where I was an investment banker. Well, real quick, before we get down the career path, I want to know what is it that you wanted to be when you grew up? When you were a kid, did you have your heart set on something? I think my heart was more set on some sort of leadership, right? Like I always found myself in situations where I was leading or organizing something. Like what? Like getting kicked out of the brownies. You got kicked out of brownies? Like that's Girl Scouts, right? It it is. I never made it to Girl Scouts because (laughs) I didn't want to wear the uniform on Thursdays because it was, I had something else on Thursdays and I organized everyone to wear it on Wednesdays. And, you know, that wasn't seen as a good thing. So (laughs) they kicked my butt out of brownies. And so, you know, and I was like, okay, whatever. I remember Um, those uniforms and you're right. I think it was like at school, you had to wear them or something. And I'm like, where is this? Girls wearing brown all day. Well, I played sports. And so it was like not easy to wear it on Thursday because I had to do something else and it got all wrinkled and, and I was just like, let's just change it to Wednesday. And they just didn't like it's a better that. day so, for me. Exactly. It's a better day for me. And, you know, everybody else joined me. So I found myself often in those situations, playing sports, being the captain of the team, you know, like things like that. So I think it was more leadership. I was very industrious. And what I mean by that is like got my first job at 14 and, you know, saved up enough money to buy my car, own car at the time and pay for my insurance. And it was waiting when my mother brought me home and, you know, from getting my driver's license, the Madison Reed can get her driver's license now. And I'm amazed that kids don't care about that the way I cared about it. Like city kids don't care about getting their driver's license right. across the board. Right. right. Well, they don't really need a car. They're in the city. It's just like I'll Uber. What's the big deal? Muni is great. And so, right. but I was industrious. And so I had a job. I saved up money. You know, I bought my own car and, you know, I'll never forget that I took the keys to the car and I came home that day. My mother had taken me to the driver's test. I passed it. And it was like, I took the keys and I'm like, Hey, see ya. And, uh, you know, I used to drive 40 minutes across Long Island to go to my first job. And when I think about it now, it was like absolutely crazy, like over freeways and like things that, you know, we as, you know, more helicopter parents, you know, maybe it wasn't a bad thing. Maybe it was a good thing. Probably was. You know, I started to go to overnight camp when I was eight and I went to the same camp until I was 19 and I 
went for eight weeks when I was eight and, you know, just got on the bus and there was no problem. And so I was industrious and independent and, you know, always liked people a lot and always wanted to do things that organized people and led people. So I don't, I didn't grow up and I was like, well, I'm going to be a lawyer or a doctor or one of those things. I grew up more like I want to have groups of people that get together to do extraordinary things. And so was there something that when you were a kid that that was that that represented for me as a kid, that was a school teacher. I was like, oh, they're a leader. They get to stand up in front of the class, tell all these kids what to do. That's maybe what I want to do. Right. And it wasn't until I realized, wait, no, actually, I don't want to do anything with kids. And I actually just want to lead people. (laughs) I think that for me, uh, it was a combination of things. One is I grew up with a lot of sort of chaos in my personal life. And, you know, what one would now diagnose as being a parentified child, right? So there wasn't, that means like you're more the parent than your parents are. And right. like, what does people, that say about us? If we're, if there's other people out there, maybe myself included, that are like this, like that we're kind of a parent or feel like a parent to their parents. Yeah. Well, what does that do to you? I, I think that becomes very normal as your parents get old. But I experienced it when I was seven and my parents weren't old. So as I said, like they didn't, there was nothing traumatically awful that happened, but they didn't sort of figure out a way to work out their stuff between each other without their kids being involved. And that it may, and then I was in the role of sort of being the one that was sort of with my mom a lot and with my dad a lot. And I was sort of taking care of that. So When you fast forward into life, when you ask me what was the what was the moment, I remember in seventh grade, I had this amazing literature teacher. And it was the first time that I thought somebody saw me for being smart. Really? Wow. And you remember that very specifically. I remember that. I remember that. And he left being a teacher to run a business, to start a business. And I remember that moment of thinking like, oh, people start businesses. They are independent. They don't have to work for somebody else. Because remember, there is this part of me that doesn't, I don't do well working for other people. Right. Right. (laughs) And and it took me years to figure it out. And that may seem like arrogant and crazy to people, but it's like, what I I am, you know, some people really like working for other people that they're comfortable. I'm uncomfortable. And so it took me a while, like getting fired and a whole bunch of things to realize like, oh, shit, maybe I shouldn't do that anymore. It's not good for all those involved, as I say. So having said that, I think this one teacher was a moment. I think when I got into high school and I played sports and was on teams was a moment. I had a great college experience was a moment. But I was always industrious from the sense of like making money and being independent and taking care of myself. Right. Right. And that probably comes with, like you were saying, you kind of felt like a parent and you felt this uh, sense of responsibility like, that probably made you. If that I wasn't going to do it, who was? Yeah. Right? yeah. Now, people can go different paths in their life. I've chosen a path of, you know, that this is none of this is to say that I'm mentally healthy. Right. Because, you know, we all have shit. Right. But, you know, we all have stuff. We're all we're all recovering or flawed in some way. So that's the first place that you start. And when you recognize that, then you can start to find some path in your life that works for you. 
I love that you said that, that we're all flawed and recovering from something. I mean, because that really, I think people just try to be so perfect and think that the normal is this not having issues, right? But actually the normal is that you have a ton of issues and you're recovering and we're all messed up in some way. (laughs) We're all a work in process. And so then this also goes into why I see failure as your best friend. Failure is always like a controversial word on the show. I feel like failure kind of can mean something so harsh. It can mean something positive. Well, it's to me, the definition for me is when something has happened that I didn't, I didn't want the outcome to be at the moment what it was. Okay. So we could use a different word. We could use challenges in life, right? We can sugarcoat it. But for all of us, there are moments like when you look back in your life, think like, oh, that didn't go well. Oh, no, I shouldn't do that again, right? Whether it's people you choose to be in relationships with, whether it's your career, whether it's, you know, your own aspirations for your life and where it ends up being. Like, these are all things. And I have a basic premise, which is we are all flawed. We are all incredibly human. We all have feelings. We're all scared. We all have anxieties. We all shine in certain areas that are gifts. Like, these are all truisms. And so when you start to realize in your life that one typically has been taught that we're supposed to be perfect and great at everything, which is basically the problem about MBAs or these kinds of things, because, or people that are highly successful in jobs is like, you actually start believing that you're just like perfect. So then that creates these enormous blind spots and those blind spots creates all this drama and crap in your life that really doesn't need to be there. And what does that have to do with the MBA? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, like, I love Wharton and I'm still dedicated to it, but it's like the message is you have to be great in finance and you have to be a good marketer and you have to be really like learn how to be like a dev engineer and you need to understand technology. And you, like, because if you're going to be trained to be, you know, sort of a master of the universe then one must know all these things and be great at all of them versus we each have talents and gifts. And life gets so much better when you know what they are and what they aren't. Right. And discovering that is tough. Yeah. It depends on how honest you want to be to yourself or your therapist. You know, it's, <laughs> hey, listen, it's taken me hundreds of thousands of dollars to figure this shit out. So with a the therapist, news, uh, I was in therapy in my twenties and early thirties and, and think part of, you know, my late thirties, cause there were a lot of stumbles in my life to, and I kept like, I think the interesting part about life is this. And a friend of mine told me this, who has been married multiple times. So I want to give this analogy, which is like, all of a sudden you're on your third marriage, but the same shit is happening, but it's a different person. What is that telling you? Right. Well, there's that rule, right? Like first time it's okay. Second time. And then third time it's your fault or something like that. Right. When patterns keep reconstructing in your life and it's in different situations, like a rational person could say, "Mm, maybe it's me. Right. (laughs) So, so it's taken me. and, And frankly, so much of my leadership style is really predicated on this basis of like, I'm completely human. I am a flawed human. I don't have all the answers. I want to work with people about finding the answers. I want to find the best in you and to help you realize your greatness. That's my job as a leader. 
but I'm still on my own journey. Right. And, and the good news, here's the good news. Like I, my mother is older, much older now. And, you know, I, I'm taking care of her and lots of things like that. But, you know, every year that racks up, you know, she's, wow, I can't believe I'm blank, but I guess the alternative sucks. So I think the issue that we're dealing with is like, I'm excited about my flaws. What would you say are some of your flaws that you're excited about? Oh, I don't trust my gut enough and my gut center. I believe in this thing called the Enneagram. And so it's really helped me in my life. And it's this concept of nine different personality types. And it's all part of this thing called conscious leadership that I practice and meditation and lots of things that have helped so many parts of my life because I have a busy mind and I have ADD and, you know, so I've come to realize like the more I slow things down, the more reality checks to understand, the more that I start to understand the core of what's in me, what is my motivations, what's my heart, where can I be connected to that? So I have a very strong gut and anybody that knows me, and I'm not just saying this would tell you like 99.9% of the time it's spot on. It's just one of those things, right? But I've trained myself to like not, to not put it forth because then it would squash other people's ideas. So it's out of a kindness place. But then I sit back and I'm really pissed off because I'm like, yeah, knew that, right? (laughs) And that's like a really obnoxious blind spot. Like that's just a trait that's obnoxious. I don't say it to somebody, but I think it, and then it creates certain kinds of resentment. And you're trying to be nice, like yeah. that leader that lets everybody yeah. have like their ideas. Like supposed to be elegant. And, but meanwhile, I'm like, well, we could have saved a lot of money in two years. So my point about that is that I've learned now to trust my gut because it's a blind spot. I've done all this work with my team. So they now know where I go like, yep, yeah, it's happening. And they'll say, oh, what's the idea? And I'll say that and they'll like, well, could we tweak that a tiny bit? And we just sort of work it through. And they actually, I've come to realize like they want my gut because it's helpful to them. It's not helpful to somebody when you think you know something, but you withhold, right? Like withholding in life. I do not believe that silence equals consent. (laughs) And so, so I have a gut, which is, I don't express my I, I don't express the gut enough. There's a blind spot. I, I'm an eight, which is called the challenger. And the eight goes to anger a lot. And where does the anger come from? It's just part of my wiring. It, it's not like, and if you were a different number, that wouldn't be your kryptonite. It's my kryptonite. Right. And I don't even know that I'm angry. So it's not like I go around just being rageful, but I just don't even know because I Patterns of behavior in us get get typed very quickly in life, right? So like the stuff that happened when you were four or five, six doesn't just go away and you kind of just evade it. It's actually imprinted in who you are. And so I had to be in charge at home. I wasn't allowed the one to be pissed off, right? I had to be the one that just held it together and got shit done. And I accepted that role willingly. So that's the other thing that I believe in life is that nothing happens to us. Yeah. It's almost like if you put up with a bunch of shit when you're a kid, even when you're an adult, you just don't have the tolerance anymore. <laughs> or you're just like, oh, I've seen this pattern before. Fuck that. Right. And so, so I, so 
and I don't understand how powerful my anger is. Mm. Right. It's very passionate. It sounds like. Yeah. And so when people feel it, even though I think I'm hardly saying something, they're like, holy moly. Right. And so I've learned to actually work it out inside myself before I work it out with anyone else. Are you a fire sign? Uh, Are you an Aries? No, I'm not an Aries. (laughs) I'm a Scorpio in birth in my, my birthday. And, but I'm a Taurus Taurus. Oh, okay. So it's like, you know, two opposite, you know, water and two earth signs and the earth signs are like accountants and the Scorpios like passionate, crazy innovator. Right. Uh, I, I have done a lot of astrology work in my astrologer. You have an astrologer, like someone you see on a regular basis. I talk to her every time I need to make a big decision. My wife and I wow. only made decisions when she has said this is going to happen or that's going to happen. Oh my gosh. That's cool. And when I met her the first time she opened the door, that's when we used to do things in person. Remember those days and uh, the good old days. And uh, she said, Oh, so like I read your chart, like how have you always felt like there's two different people living inside you? Right. Because they're well, Tauruses and Scorpios are, they are literally opposite. Right. So there's a lot of gravitational pull for me to like follow rules. And and then the other side is just like crazy disruptor, like nuts, really nuts, like actually out there. So I've learned that these things that are my own blind spots, right, are things that are stopping me from achieving things that I want. Like I'm, I'm responsible for me. It takes a while for people to learn. Yeah, because realize, yeah. you know why? Because if if you're what I call a hammer in life and you're looking for the problems, which are nails, there are so many friggin' nails, right? So the truth of the matter is like, we have rational reasons to be irritated in the world, right? There are things going on that are like really out of our control. They're, we're not crazy, but it's how do you decide to construct your own life within the context of one constant, change. (laughs) The only constant in life is things just change. Businesses change, people change, you know, situations change quickly. And so how do we become responsible human beings that can find joy and gratitude? Like, so to me, the whole game, I, I talk about this all the time, life is an inside job. And the entire game at the end of the day will be how much joy and gratitude and love did we spread, did we spread and receive period full stop. So if we can get focused on love, gratitude, and joy, instead of anger, you know, resentment and being pissed off all the time or not enjoying what's right in front of you, what's right in front of you. Like I'm looking outside, like there is green and there are trees and it is beautiful out. We, you know, we have a saying at Madison Reed and people really believe it that come here. I talk about it all the time. We get to do this. We don't have to do this. We get to do this. And we're on the ride of our life. And so in the midst of all of the shit storms and, you know, it's not pretty behind the curtain of the sausage factories. I tell them, looks all great. Yeah, you have this many stores. It's hard to run stores, right? It's hard to do those things. Underneath it, the basic premise is like we are in a boat together. We have a tribe that is committed to a mission and a purpose. And 
we get to be together. So let's make that be glorious. Yeah. You know, it's really, I love that you say that about building a business. It it truly is just something to be so grateful to have the opportunity to do. (laughs) I mean, come on, like the rest, the majority of the world doesn't even have. Uh, You know, when I was a full-time venture capitalist, the Mm -hmm. thing that I was, and I did that for six years full-time, the thing that I loved most about my job was like, who gets to give people money to meet, <laughs> to meet smart people, first yeah. of all, that are really smart and passionate, extraordinary people, founders, right? Who gets to meet them, hear really intellectually stimulating ideas, like that can be world-changing, give them money so that they can achieve their, their dreams. And then watch them achieve and then their watch dreams. Them and, and help them <laughs> yes. and, and, and not stand in their way and make it hard for them. Right. Right. So like I was the person around the board table being like, I am rooting for you, CEO. What is it that makes your job better or easier? Right. Because in the end, that's a that's going to help them. And what you have to understand when you're a VC is like your job is to take a ton of shots on goal. So like getting irritated when they don't work. It's a hits driven business like that's your job. Right. So I just thought it was like it you know, like a gift of a lifetime to meet these extraordinary people. I used to get more referrals from people I turned down than, and it was because like, I always tried to pay it forward. Like here's three people that could help you. Right. So at the end of the day, yeah, I, I get to do this. That's awesome. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews, and they want to make it simple and easy for you to collect user-generated content to use for your Shopify site. Retailers that use Okendo have seen an 81% increase in conversion rate when customers interact with reviews and UGC on their site. With Okendo, you can showcase UGC and reviews on your e-commerce site to build trust with your customer base and compel buying action. Okendo works with some of Shopify's fastest growing brands like Skims, Carbon 38, Byte, Magic Spoon, so many more. So if you'd like to join these high growth brands, head on over to go.okendo.io slash stairway to CEO to book a demo and take advantage of getting 30 days free on Okendo. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. You know, you have such an incredible career journey. We could go for hours, I feel like, just about your experience and your incredible career. Can we sum it up in just a few minutes? Because I'd love to get to how you came up with the idea and, and get into some Madison Reed stuff. But yeah, you know. Yeah. So yeah, investment banker, not good for all those involved. <laughs> Started was my your first job out of college or was that uh, after? No, my first job out of college undergrad was at Dun & Bradstreet. Oh, wow. You know, it was like a credit analyst. And then I got lucky enough to be hired by a bank and go through the credit training program, which is like getting a mini MBA and then moving into a number of different kind of elevated roles very, very quickly. And then going back to B school, coming back to the same place and then going into the investment banking side, M&A side and just realizing like, no, that's not for me. Uh, And then started my first company. I moved out to California because it was like 
you know, the wild west, you know, it was like gunslinging, like who are, what people give you money to do this stuff? Um, like, I want I some guess. Of that. Yeah. So, but it wasn't VC backed. It was a company called the Spectrum Group, you know, six years, seven years in six or seven years in, I sold it to a public company. So that was like a very good outcome early in my career. And then I went to E-Trade where I was one of the senior executives, you know, kind of reporting to the CEO in the, you know, boom and bust of E-Trade. So learned a lot about the internet and hiring thousands of people and firing thousands of people and watching a stock split in the 300s and then having it worth $3, right? Like I learned that whole thing, but I also learned something that was really interesting to me in that journey, which was the possibilities of crazy ideas that actually disrupt an entire industry. Like if you remember back to E-Trade or people remember back, now it's like a standard like nobody traded their own money. Nobody controlled their own money. Like if you had enough money, you had a broker. And there was the big signs that said, fire your broker, right? Like it was really disruptive. So like the fact that we took something and turned it into a whole different way that consumers could have a life was fascinating to me. So I enjoyed that. And then I, uh, then, then was my stumble. I was recruited to run what was a very small founder owned, not venture back uh, company that was the largest gay travel company in the world. And I did that and the, learned the hard way that working for a founder, uh, it doesn't always work out for the person that comes in to be told that they're going to be the successor. And so I got fired in a hotel lobby after 20 folding the growth of the company, never taken a dollar the founder had decided that they wanted to come back in and run. And so I was dismissed in a hotel lobby after not seeing them for six months. Uh, the person had had cancer and I ran the company during that period of time. And, you know, we were growing and flourishing. And so that was like a very big, hard thing because I'm an outgate person and this was embarrassing in the market. And there were, all, I ended up having, I and my management team who picked up and left with me my whole leadership team picked up and left. And then uh, there was an agreement. I owned a portion of the company and the way that the valuation was set up was that it, it was right below our preference. So we got to, we were going to get zero. So a lawsuit, a lawsuit ensued. It ended up being settled after an 18 month sort of toxic period of time, you know, and we got money and that was fine. But at that point it wasn't just about, it wasn't about money. It was about, you know, like, really, 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 you know, like you couldn't have had a conversation saying, I want to come back in and let's get something, you know, <laughs> this know. May, you know, like firing yeah. me and trumping up things like that. I, you said I did, which were untrue, right? Like it was just like a character assassination. So, but I'll, I'll never forget this one thing that happened on that day. It was a Monday. Uh, and I was like completely blindsided. So I had my top down in my car and I was driving home and I'm like, Oh, wow. Like, the sun's out. It's beautiful. Like people are walking around. It's 10 o'clock on a Monday morning. People aren't working in offices. Like it was just a revelation of like, oh boy, maybe I had this all wrong. Right. And then I got home and Madison was for the Madison Reed. And I was obsessed with my, my wife and I telling Madison what happened. And Claire, my wife was like, Amy, she's four. What the, what is wrong with you? I'm like, no, no, she needs to know. So Claire did this really brilliant thing. She pulled Madison over and she said, Madison, I have really good news. Mommy works at home now. 
And Madison took me by the hand, I'll never forget this, and walked me up stairs to my home office and took her hand and waved it. And she said, Mommy, welcome. And she went to the chair. We're so glad that you're here now. And it was like, whatever you believe in spiritually, it was like that person speaking to me going like, oh man, you had this all wrong. You need to focus on your family. You need to be there for your kid. You need to like get, you know, you're too invested and you're, you got blind spots about this and your ego's out of whack. And like, this isn't like what happened isn't important. This is important. So if that create, that ripped a bandaid off, it was the best thing that ever happened in my life was the worst thing. And I was in therapy and the therapist told me this one thing, take a picture of the founder and put it on your mirror every day. And I'm like, are you fucking nuts? And the, and the, and, and the therapist said, no, that's your best friend. I don't know. I'd be the same as you. I'd be no, like, I don't think because so. Everything, everything you need to know is in why you're hooked into the rage you have. So I went deep. I learned to meditate, changed my life. Did some consulting, took some time, tried to not get hooked into the drama of a lawsuit. And in that period of time, it's kind of a bizarre story, but Mavron, who is the firm that I worked, ended up being a VC for, was interested in making an investment in the company that I was just fired from. And they called me and said, like, what the hell happened? And I'm like, well, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, yeah, when you came to this, like, we were like, we love you, but she's weird. And so they're like, hey, why don't you, you want to be a venture capitalist? And I'm like, no, I don't know. And, you know, um, and they're like, why don't you just come hang out with us on Mondays in Seattle? So one of the things I was doing was what's called an EIR, an entrepreneur in residence. So I started doing that there. I started doing it, Trinity Ventures. And then, you know, within a couple, I think a year and a half, they asked me if I'd open the Bay Area office. And that became, so like, there's an example of from the unlikely places in life. None of us, the dots are all connected. They are all connected. And we have to understand, it's like following the, you know, it's like going back to the brownie story, like following the trail mix, you know, that you put out on the trail as you learn how to hike down something and make a fire. I don't know what they're trying to teach us. (laughs) Selling cookies, entrepreneurship, I don't know. Oh yeah, they didn't teach us break a fire. That would be for boys, right? That was a good one. So anyway, so I did that. Uh, opened the office, kind of put, built a brand. And I did that for almost six years. And then, and I loved it. And I learned a ton. And, you know, I, I, Howard Schultz was one of the partners there. And so, you know, I, I got to see up close and personal somebody who founded something that was so personal to him and how he did that and what he cared about and the values. And so I, we had been pitched Dollar Shave Club. And I got to know Mike Dubin and we nice. passed and we passed on it. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, wait, and, and Mike's on my board now at Madison Reed, by the way. That's funny. Um, so we stayed friends. And I had like, you know, when you're a VC, you all have different opinions. And I thought we should do the deal and some people didn't. It's okay. Because there's ones I wanted to do that we did that, uh, you know, or other people that they were right. It has nothing to do with that when you're a VC. It's like, you know, some you win some, you lose some. But I was obsessed at that time with this concept of like, oh my God, you know, these brands are going to start crack, kicking the crap out of CPG companies. Like we could just skip the aisle and we could just make something cheaper and we could build an indie brand. And why wouldn't people buy directly from us? Right. So I got obsessed. So I had an analyst at 
Mamron. And I said, could you run a scan of how, what, what in the women's market is the analog to shave? And the size of the price of hair color was crazy. And it was also like repetitive and there was consumption and you throw the box away, you can't use it again. Like, it's like, oh my God. So I just got intrigued about it. Well, how, so hair color came out of her do, or your uh, analyst doing research and saying, this is the category. This is a category. The, this is one of the categories, like obviously color cosmetics. And there was a lot of categories in personal care, but I started to like, just think around and look at that, what was on the alternatives. And I was like, whoa, salons, like that's ridiculous. And then I kept thinking about, and at the same time, my wife is Italian and very gray at 25 and she has to color her hair every two weeks. So I was having this experience of her, like we care what we eat, what's in our body, what's on our body. And she was like asking our stylist, what are you using on my hair? And that person couldn't like really- Just a bunch know, of chemicals, don't worry exactly. about it. <laughs> so the other part of it was like, I was watching the repetitive use. I was watching her be frustrated about this and scared. And then like her starting to ask me, like, when you go to Whole Foods on Saturday with our list, could you buy me hair color? And I'm like, why hair color at Whole Foods? Like, where is it, first of all? And second of all, like, why do we think it's better? Which, by the way, it isn't. And then buying boxes at Walgreens. And I have all these like crazy stories of just smattering around. And then I started to figure out, like, why can't you take the harsh chemicals out? Like, what is stopping it? And just started to like talk to people at L'Oreal and talk to scientists and talk to chemists. And then, you know, got serious enough to figure out like, how do you make it? And how do you get a chemist and blah, blah, blah. So initially I was thinking about like, do I want to go in again and like run something? Like I'd run a bunch of things and, you know, I knew what it's like. Like it's, it's like willingly going into like, ah, yeah, there is a huge river and it's got a really strong stream coming down. And a lot of alligators. <laughs> and a lot of alligators. So I'm just going to walk into the middle of it and see what the hell happens. Right. right. And so you know that you're up for, you know, just so much stuff that's the curveballs. It's so hard. And the chances of it working are really low. So, you know, one thing led to the other. And the one thing was I was on the phone with somebody who was leaving L'Oreal and I told them the idea and it was supposed to be 30 minutes and we were on the phone for two and a half hours. And at the end of it, the person said, if you do this, I'd like to put money. So they validated for me that the way we were thinking about it made sense. Uh, and I kept saying, well, like, why aren't, and they're like, Amy, we're not going to change our formula. It's been there for 40 years. If we changed it, it would tell everybody that everything's on the shelf is crap. We're stuck. So, you know, decided that I, you know, jump back in and here we go. So we started, you know, obviously proving the concept, you know, how to make it had 19 shades. First, we have 60 now, you know, we had to get, we got a beta of a thousand women and why they agreed to <laughs> let us color it, use our product color their hair is beyond me. And, you know, and, you know, they got the color for free and then we tried different business models and subscription, non-subscription. And so like we spent a full year between incorporation, making the color and testing the business model and then launched in July of 2014. It was D2C initially, you know, all of it was D2C. And then we, Sephora came to us and asked us whether we would put one of our products in uh, beauty on the fly. 
So we did that and, you know, kind of stuck our toe into retail. Then I'll never forget at a board meeting in like 2016, maybe, or 2017, I said to the board, you know, our hair color is salon quality and I think we should open the store. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I think we should put our color like a salon does on people's hair because it's that good. And I think that's broken and we can build the technology to stack up appointments and then people will sometimes buy boxes to take home. And we could turn the whole industry upside down because like your stylist is never going to give you the color. And so you're stuck. Right. And there is a group of people that just don't really want to do it at home because it's messy. Yes. Well, there's 48, 48% of the market, by the way, doesn't want to do it at home. So like <laughs> I said, you know, we only have, could get 50% of the TAM Mm-hmm. And the other 50%, like our product rocks and they, the modern woman doesn't want to go somewhere for three hours, have to work around one person's schedule, the stylist, and not know what the ingredients are or have the portability to go anywhere. And I'm like, I think we could do this. And they're like, okay, I said, I want $100,000 to test it. And so they released the hundred grand. We had a pop-up in Flatiron. We were open for five months. It, it was full after five weeks. It was crazy. And, you know, it was like out of home advertising on billboards in New York. And, you know, it was like not very sophisticated, but we were full and uh, we had to give up the lease because it was a pop up. And then I had a bunch of pissed off customers. Uh, And (laughs) so we opened a small one in our office in San Francisco. We then opened the full time one in Flatiron. And, you know, I hired a COO who knew four walls stuff. And then, you know, we were off to the races. And then COVID hit. So when COVID hit in March of 2020, we had 12 open. Seven of them had only been open for six months. Oh, wow. So they're just starting to get into getting loyal customers to come back. I mean, oh. And, and uh, you had to close and down at the how same many? Time at the, we had to close them all now. Oh, wow. But at the same time, on March 16th of 2020, our volume online 5X. And we were selling a box of hair color by the middle, by the end of March, every five seconds. And that lasted for months and months and months. And the number three Google term on the internet was how do you color your hair at home in beauty? Right, because everybody was stuck, you know? Right, right. they couldn't and, get yeah. their hair done. And then um, all of a sudden, people, all the years of all the marketing and my radio ads and all that stuff was like, oh, what's the name of that company? Second Google term for Madison Reed was hair color company named after founder's father. Okay, I can't make it up because that's what's on the radio ads that I do. I do the radio ads and I do podcast ads. And I say it's a hair color company I named after my daughter. My daughter's first name is Madison, her middle name's Reed. So, all of a sudden people are Googling it and it was like an explosion over our head. And we make our hair color in Italy. That was in the Lombardy region, which was the whacked region of COVID right after Wuhan. Does your daughter think it's so cool to have <laughs> this company named after her? Yes, of course. I mean, she's human. <laughs> she's like, I'm famous. Uh, but she's a very different personality. She's very quiet, very humble. And she is, a, there's a part of her that she's not showy. So there's a part of her that kind of nobody in her high school knew till like junior year. Is she like super popular now because everybody knows this? Uh, Sort of, but she's, she would tell you this herself, which I love about her. She's like geeky and into, you know, film and avant-garde stuff. She's, she took a gap year and she goes to college in six weeks. 
And so she's going to Emerson and the film school there, which is a great film school and for creative writing. And she wants to do screenplays. And when she gets pissed off at me, she says the following, which is hilarious. She calls me mama and my, my wife, Claire, mom, uh, she calls me mommy and my wife, Claire, mama She says, mommy, you know, if you continue to, if we continue to have this riff, when I win my first Oscar, I'm not going to mention you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Uh, how about Ouch. the second one? Yeah, exactly. So she's got a lot of surety about that, but she's shy about Madison Reed, but we were just in Europe because it was, I hadn't been to our factory in two years. And um, she kept walking around saying, why aren't we here? Why aren't we here? And, you know, the truth is we're going to be, we're, we should be a global company and we will be uh, because hair color is big and it's everywhere. So yeah, that's kind of, then we got, went into Alta, into all the stores and Alta.com and, you know, now the Alta Target stores and, you know, yeah, company is growing and flourishing and, but behind the curtain of the sausage factory are just, you know, you just earn the right to have different problems. That's all. What are those challenges happening behind the sausage factory? What are some of the biggest, obviously COVID being one of them, but kind of outside of that, what are some of the biggest challenges that you maybe like didn't expect, even though you've been an investor, you've been a founder before, like, is there anything that came up where you're like, wow, didn't see that one coming or any other really challenges that you. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's tons of them. I think the biggest one is, this thing has scaled really fast and it's really hard to hold the values of culture. So it's like when you're running a company that has HQ people or Dever engineers or salaried employees that have, that are a certain, you know, sort of group of people. And then you have a lot of people that are in stores, working retail, doing services, hourly, right. Commission-based, like it's a very, the set of things that motivates each of the groups is different. And so you have to learn how to motivate the groups differently. You have to hold our culture differently. How does the culture stay, which was very like on the walls, we get to do this, you know, love always wins. Like these are the messages in the company. How do you do that remotely when, you know, you got people that, you know, for all the right reasons, by the way, don't come into these relationships that you hire, like understanding the culture and the mission and the purpose and trusting. So like you have to translate that. So I didn't, I, I knew hypothetically that could happen. I didn't know the velocity in which the infrastructure needs to hold that. So we're catching up, but the onboarding, the training, the hospitality skills, the Madison Reed way, as I call it, you know, is really different. Like I walk stores. It's most, a lot of what I do once a week, I'm out in stores and I'm, not trying to intimidate anybody. I'm just like sitting with customers. Like, oh, founders here, everybody. <laughs> no, and but here's the thing. Like my style is like everybody pulls me in the back room and wants to like tell me something they think is needs to improve, which is great. Great, yeah. yeah. And I talk to all the customers, and it's where we get our best ideas. So my point is that like the the infrastructure of scaling culture that is different and unique and disruptive is really hard when you grow. And that has been a big challenge. Understanding, second challenge, understanding my own personal development as a leader, as this thing has grown. And this notion of being brought up in a world where you try to keep people in your organization at all costs. And we're up against a workforce that doesn't really want to do things more than three and four years. And that's nothing against Madison Reed. That's just the world has changed. 
So like, how do I develop my own journey? Cause I love heart, right? Like when you're in that tribe, you know, this is a leader that's going to put themselves in front of the train track for you. Right. So I've had to learn that companies go through developmental needs to change people and different skills and, and, and how to not take that personally, right? Like how to not like, I've had people that I've absolutely taken under my wing. I loved and adored that were like, you know, Amy, this opportunity came and I'm going to take it and how to do that with grace. Right. And then how to teach the company that we have to honor people that leave, not just come. Right. And, and these are things that I've had to learn in paying it forward in my own life. You know, my own journey, like what I'm a working class kid, you know, who had to earn a lot of stuff. And, you know, I'm not this is very this sounds like bullshit, but I'm I'm not interested in this being the Amy Eric spotlight. Like I'm in this to win it for the people. Right. For our customers. And most of it, frankly, are for people that are disenfranchised, like our average team member in a hair color bar or our call center is making two to three X what they ever made. And they come out of cosmetology school, 20 plus thousand dollars in debt. So we have created a, and they're not the person working in Beverly Hills for $800 a service. Like there, there's a world out there where there's a million stylists and a hundred thousand salons. So just do the math. So the majority of them are making $23 an hour and they have debt and they have kids. And, you know, 57% of our workforce are people of color, primarily 83% women. Like, do you want to know how the world can change? It can change because Madison Reed gives them a great job that pays their benefits and they make a ton of money and they love what they do. And they're proud of the mission and they feel part of it. Like that, the world's not going to change because the government's going to wake up one day and decide like, oh, we got it all fixed. In fact, by the way, like it's going the opposite direction. And so the truth of the matter is, as business leaders, we have to look in the mirror every day and say like, you know, we're going to have over a thousand people by the end of this year and probably over 2000 people next year. Like I have an obligation to, to better their lives. That's what motivates me. This isn't about me. Like I'll take care of me. So like, I've had to grapple with that. I've had to, you know, you win entrepreneur of the year and everyone's like, you know, wow, you're great. And I'm just like, yeah, thanks. We got my eyes on the bigger prize. And the bigger prize isn't about like building my personal brand. I don't give a, you know what about that. My bigger prize for me, my mission is like, can I change 2000 people's lives who then change their kids' lives and their family? Like that's, but that's also, that's also why you won the award. I mean, like if you hear yourself talking, it's like, well, that's exactly what makes a great leader is everything that you're saying. But that we also live in Silicon Valley where that isn't really true. That's I know. I agree with you. And, and so, and, and that isn't really true. It's like, look at yeah. me chest pounding. I'm great. I'm a billion. Like, right. It is, we have evolved from the core purpose of why, you know, at 10 years old, I'm like, I want to lead and I want my tribe. I want my people together to take something hard and make it be ours, right? And so from a mission and purpose standpoint, you know, we're locked in, but I'm doing a lot of work. We've made tons of mistakes. Like, Things that I think about now and I'm like, I need to lay in the fetal position for uh, about 20 minutes and cry. 
you know, how to like, not lick your wounds, but be in that gratitude space of like, yeah, we learned a lot. Let's, you know, as I call it next game, right? Like, what do you learn? Is, is that how do you, what advice do you have or how do you cope with tough times? Do you kind of, like you said, cry in fetal position for 20 minutes, let it out and then get up and roll or, or what? You know, I have, I have, I have a coach, you know, I believe in coaching deeply. Yeah. I believe an executive no coach. Who, yeah. I have, a, and, and I, and he's sort of a life coach and, you know, it's helped me in lots of things. What it is to be human. And I could get teary about this is actually we grow most when our hearts break. If we let it, I think sometimes that's really hard to do. Exactly. So we live in a world that if you just avoid, withdraw, deny, withhold, right? Hi. And then it, and hi. And then it causes this, like the truth is still the truth. And so it's like, we are deceiving ourselves. We're deceptive about the truth, right? We can only digest so much because hearts breaking is really hard. But when hearts break, the ability for them to heal in healthier ways and to love bigger and harder and more expansively is really true. So like, this is the same thing, like failure for most people is a heartbreak. Is that a heartbreak that you have experienced? Oh my God. Like I got fired in a hotel lobby after (laughs) I got fired pretty harshly too. I feel like I can relate to you so well. After after like actually succeeding at some, so it's like, did I fuck up some things? But it's like, (laughs) what did I do wrong here? Like what happened, you know, with an envelope, you know, where's the humanity though. in that, like, that's what makes me so, but it isn't, but it isn't. And, but then again, like it's made okay though, by a lot of investors, like, Oh, but, but then, but that what I've also learned is like, that's their problem, right? Like I had to have my heartbreak and I had to heal in a bigger way and then look at what happened. I was able to create a career where hopefully I created companies and gave money to people that have done like some of the names, I'm not going to go into it, are extraordinary and have created thousands of jobs and thousands of experiences, right? And then decided like, oh, I want to be that person again. And now trying to do that. Like I'm hoping that every person, and I really want people to hear this, that ever uses Madison Reed on their head as a consumer. Like all of a sudden, part of the mantra that you see behind my Zoom, right, is like the mission of the company is better ingredients because you deserve it. But the mission of the company is when your hair looks fucking great, I don't care who you are. You're like, lights out, baby. I got this. Right. Right. That's yeah. just true. You feel so and when much your better. Hair doesn't, right. So there's meta, it's metaphoric. I picked hair color because it's a way to say to people, great ingredients and for a great price. And I want your hair to look great. I want you to feel great. I want you to be the badass that you really know that's inside of you. Cause we all know down deep that there's some badass in each one of us that just we're, we're, it's the inside job I talked about. We're responsible for unleashing the badass or not. Nobody's else. You're the only person who can release it. Yeah. So it's like, I want that person. I want that woman who's got, you know, kids, a career is trying to make things better. Who is, you know, the controls, the friendships and taking care of aging parents and has her own kids and is worried financially and cares about ingredients and is trying to look great when she's aging in her life, which, by the way, is a fucking, you know, like, you know, 
we buy into these media stories, right? Like the media stories is like, oh, if you're over 40, you're done. <laughs> right. Really? Retired yet? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wrinkle? Oh, terrible. Um, <laughs> right? So my point of the matter is like, who defines beauty? We define beauty. And I want to be a company that allows a woman to, to either go into a hair color bar seamlessly and for $70 in an hour and 15 minutes or doing it at home or doing it in a hotel room when she's traveling because she knows the color and it's great to w- look in the mirror and think, I, I, you know, I look pretty good. Oh, right. Yeah. I can, I can do this. Not too yeah. bad. Not too yeah. I still got not, it. Yeah. I still got it. And, <laughs> and that to me is some rippled effect of what the company is, is built on. So I got my, I mean, yeah, like I'm, anxious and flawed. And, you know, I got my set of limiting beliefs, but I talk about this all the time that every one of us carries what I call sort of your upper limit. Each one of us has somewhere emblazed in our head that we can't be more than something. Mm, because so of our kind of seeing yeah, that level yeah, exactly. and that's all we've or ever the seen. Messages, like, you're know. not that smart. You're not that pretty. You're not that good at this. You're really not. Blah, blah. So then you get up to that point and then you self-destruct, right? Because you're not, you can't get through the limit. That's as far as you think you can go. Exactly. Yeah. So the, and so if you buy into that limit, your life will always have a ceiling on it. So I've had to do a lot of work of like, shit, I'm busting through that limit. God damn it. You know, it's like, okay, I'm scared of what's on the other side that maybe I'm not good enough or maybe I'm not smart enough or maybe like I'm human. But when you figure out what the limit is and then you look at that story, which, by the way, it's only a story. It's not the truth. It's just a story you bought into. It's like all these little snippets of when that happened, when you got fired in the hotel, it's really meant you weren't right. Then if you bust through that story and you're on the other side, you're like, oh, my God, look at what the universe is presenting. Right. It is all there for us. So you just have to decide what part, you know, are you willing to look at the warts and the limits and the other stuff? And are you allowed to have your heart broken? And are you allowed to be able to cry and grieve things that didn't go the way you want and then heal and come back out the other side? Got to come crawling back out of the hole. (laughs) Well, (laughs) crawl out, guys. If you're listening and you're in the hole, get out, <laughs> get out. You can do yeah. it. We're here rooting for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Amy, thank you so much for such an inspiring conversation. Um, I know we're running out of time here. Um, you guys have raised over $2,236 million. I mean, I'd go into like how you went into fundraising, but you've got such an incredible background at Mavron and True Ventures. I mean, you have VC down. Do you have any advice for founders that are looking to fundraise? And also, what other you know, advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? So the fundraising piece is you have to believe in what you're pitching. Everyone, I think, thinks that, but maybe they don't, you know, they don't really know what that means. But what, if, what it really means is like it. your passion has to come through. It's not just about the data, the facts, the figures. Those are important. There's a, there's a playbook. Trust me. There's a playbook. Like, here's what the deck is supposed to look like because people are trained to evaluate your deck that way. Here's the check of the box. Here's the, you know, are you are it for venture money? And this is the part that I talk about all the time that 
95% of companies in the US should never take venture money, right? Because they can't give the kind of return that a venture capitalist needs to be tied to, right? Because if you think about what I said, it's a hits-driven business. So if you're going to make 50 investments out of a fund and only four of them do really well, they better do really well. So that means that the other 46, you, you never know in the beginning. So you just have to think about, is the total addressable market big enough? Having said that, if it's not venture back, it freaking doesn't mean it's a bad company. Like if I said to you, you could run a $10 million company, you put a million dollars in your pocket every year and give a bunch of people jobs. But what is bad about that? You'd probably accumulate more wealth over a 10 year period than an outcome of something that you only end up owning 5% of, right? Like it just do the math. So then maybe it's, but you need money to start. So maybe it's friends and family, maybe it's angels. But everybody gets wrapped around an axle like, oh, I have to be venture. Right. By these specific funds, you yeah. know. Yeah. But the rules of engagement of being venture back, the reason that I know this is like, I know what the expectation is. So it's like $230 million. Like, I'm not sitting here thinking this is a cakewalk. I willingly took money and I need to, I want to give these people back way more than that. But that's the rules of engagement. I shouldn't have taken it if I don't understand them, right? Yeah. But there's a lot of people that don't understand. Exactly. So the first yeah. place to start is understand what you're asking for, how much you need, and really are you venture-backed. If the answer to that is your venture-backed, there is somewhat of a formula to a deck. And you know, it's to outlay the total addressable market, why you're different, why you're better. I always think about things in terms of you know, size of the prize your product innovation. And I mostly fund and care about consumer things. So I don't like, I can't talk about SaaS. I think it's great, but what I is don't. the difference? There's a lot of consumer brands out there and you've been a consumer investor for a really long time yeah. with these consumer brands. Why do some get funded and others don't? Is it mostly traction and growth? Isn't there? Yeah. I, I think it's mostly that either the size of the price of what the consumer brand is, is going up against may not be big enough or, what people get uh, tripped up on, and I'll tell you this, is where is the product innovation that would make a consumer switch behavior? There are so few ideas like a Peloton that's just new, creating a new category. It was in fitness, but it's a new category. Anybody who doesn't think it is, it is, right? Or Twitter, right? Like these are new categories. There's a handful of those. But if you're in a category like Madison Reed, what is it about Madison Reed? that would make somebody switch from L'Oreal to us or their salon to us. Someone's got to believe that we got something that's different. And then the big trip up for most people is being uh, naive about marketing. Whether it's the cost, the scale, what it takes, who do you have? The other part is like, you need to show up with a team and you need to show up. So it's always product, size of the prize and people. And so once you can get that right, then you're going to find there's plenty of money still. There's money. You know, your valuations probably won't be what they were, but that's a good thing. Yeah. Things I are shifting, which is a whole other topic for another podcast. Okay. I feel like, you know, like there we've got wrapped around that. So you have to be a unicorn. Really? Yeah. Okay. How's that going yeah. for it? Yeah. Not easy. Yeah. Well, Amy, thank you so much again for sharing your amazing sure. story. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, thank you, Lee, for having me. I really enjoyed it. You're awesome. 
thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.